Hello and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth, verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. Join pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, as he continues the study through the Old Testament book of Judges. This is part one of a three-part study of Judges, chapter two. You have a few moments, so why don't you grab your Bibles and follow along. Please turn to Judges, chapter two, beginning at verse one. We're going to be in Judges chapter 2 this morning as we uh, continue working our way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, book by book, chapter by chapter. And so I encourage you to open your Bibles up. Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, now beginning at verse 1. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swore unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be as a snare unto you. And it came to pass, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance on Timnath Herez, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gaash. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Baalim. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord, and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. With us over they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went to whoring after other gods, and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way, which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass, 
when the judge was dead, that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died, that through them I may prove Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein, as their fathers did keep it, or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. Gracious Father, once again we're in that place of looking to you for understanding in these things. That, Father, you would once again, by the power of your Spirit, reveal your word to us, help us to comprehend it, to understand it correctly, and to be able to apply it to our lives, Father. We thank you for what you're going to do. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapters 1 and 2 in Judges are kind of a an overview of the things that are going to take place. I mean, I explained to you last week about the cycle, that the children of Israel walk with the Lord for a season, and they kind of stumble and fall. And in this repetitive cycle that will take place, chapters 1 and 2 are pretty much an overview of the whole thing. And so you get kind of a, a double, maybe even a triple dose of it, because chapter 1 describes it, chapter 2 describes it, then we get into chapter 3, and then begin to get into the actual specifics of who's doing what when, and then we'll see that cycle kind of played out. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swore unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Kind of sounds like us talking to our kids at times. Hey, I just watched you do such and such. Why did you do that? The typical kid response is a blank stare and a shrug over the shoulders. I don't know. And that's kind of what Israel does. You don't see a response to this. Verse 3, Wherefore I said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. In verse 1, actually, it says, An angel of the Lord. And then in verse 4, it says, The angel of the Lord. And then through the text here, in verse 1 in particular, those personal pronouns, I made you, I swore, I said, I will, my covenant, my voice, these things indicate that this is, in fact, a theophany or a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus to the nation of Israel. We know in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word is made flesh and dwelt among us. And we have the nativity, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, coming among men. But prior to that, we have several occasions where the Lord, usually referred to as the angel of the Lord, will appear to the nation of Israel or to individuals and warn them, guide them, do different things. And that's what we have here today. Speaking this way, this is also a rebuke and a reminder of the previous commitments. He swears, I will never break my covenant with you. In other words, I'm always going to keep my end of the bargain. And God is so good at that, that God never breaks his promises. If his promises aren't true, if his promises aren't fulfilled, then what good is his word? We should just close it up and toss it in the fire. But God's word is true, and his promises will always be fulfilled. This is both a rebuke and a reminder of the previous commandments. I brought you up out of Egypt. Don't forget who it is that brought you. I brought you into this land. You were not to make any covenants with the people. You are not to make any agreements. You were to break down their altars. You were to destroy their places of worship and not to be tainted by it, not to be involved in it. Then he says, but you haven't done that. You've been disobedient. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16, 
the original commandment on this, it says, But of the cities of these people which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breathes, but thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Then in verse 18 we have the reason why. That they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods, so you should sin against the Lord your God. The reason is because God doesn't want the children of Israel to be corrupted by this evil influence. He doesn't want these pagan cultures teaching God's children, the children of Israel, how to worship the way they worship and to do the things the way they do it. It's like, no, don't go there. It's a tremendous warning because these pagan nations are going to be a corrupting influence. Then we have the consequence, the pronouncing of judgment, that God would not drive out their enemies from before them any longer, that they would be constant irritants and snares to them. As this warning in Deuteronomy 20 is kind of set aside, the children of Israel are plagued by the people groups that they would not destroy. God says everything that breathes, kill it. And they didn't do that. And so they come back over the years, many years, and they become a very corrupting influence, and they lead the children of Israel basically into idolatry. The Jews become so accustomed to the sinful ways of their pagan neighbors that over time, those ways don't seem to be quite so bad as they once were. And what that is, that it's, they're desensitized. Okay, They're so accustomed to seeing these things, after a while, ah, that's not so bad. It doesn't really impact me or live and let live, that kind of thing. And they're doing what they're doing, but that doesn't mean anything to me. But eventually, they become so desensitized to these things, they become, quote-unquote, tolerant. They become accepting of what's being done. The Jews become interested in how their neighbors worshipped until finally Israel starts to live like their enemies and to imitate their ways. And then we see that the judgment that comes from that. And we as a culture, we as a church actually, need to guard against that, that we don't become so desensitized. I mean, we live in a culture that is anti-Christ. We live in a culture that is anti-church, anti-God's word. And there's so many things going on, and we can get used to seeing the violence <laughs> If back when I was a kid they'd published a Victoria's Secret catalog and sent it to somebody's mailbox, somebody would have been in big trouble because that's like pornography. They wouldn't even publish that stuff years ago. But now you get it in your mailbox, it's like no big deal. And people have become so desensitized to seeing those kinds of things. The language that you hear on TV and on the radio, the FCC would have would have shut those guys down back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. But now it's commonplace to hear curse words on public TV and public radio. We've become so desensitized to it. Certain behaviors don't matter to us anymore. I mean, I remember watching I Love Lucy and some of those old sitcoms when I was a kid, and Ricky and Lucy had separate beds. Now, that was totally unrealistic, but they weren't going to show a couple in bed together on TV. Now they show a lot more than that. And it's crazy because, again, as a culture, we've become accepting of that. For believers today, the first step away from the Lord is friendship with the world. James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 4, he says, You adulterers and you adulteresses. I never liked the beginning of that particular verse. You adulterers and you adulteresses. He's talking to a group of people that have been unfaithful. That have been unfaithful, not necessarily in a marital relationship or anything else, but in their relationship to God himself. You've been unfaithful. And he says, Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We've got to choose one or the other. We're either going to be friends with the world and and go along with the world, or we're going to be at odds with the world, at enmity with the world. And does anybody like to be at odds with our culture and our society? Do we like to like rub people the wrong way all the time? None of us do, but it's what we're called to do. 
We're called to be different. The church, the name church is ecclesia in Greek, and it means the called out ones. <laughs> we're called to be different. We're called to be sanctified. We're not called just to blend in. Hi, I'm an undercover Christian. God says that we're to be different. The next step, the result in this progression, is that if we continue to be friends with the world, we will sooner or later be defiled by the world. It's described in Joshua chapter 6, verse 18. God says, And you, in any wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest you make yourselves accursed. But when you take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it, remember the sin of Achan. He took the robes and the gold bar and all that kind of junk, and in so doing, he became defiled, and he defiled the camp. There was a consequence to the whole camp. They lost the battle of Ai. Men died. There is an impact on the rest of us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Don't get dirty. Don't meddle in the things of the world. Don't defile yourself, he's saying, and I'll receive you. I tell you what, I want to be received by God. I want to be in, quote-unquote, his good grace. I want to have fellowship and communion with him. I don't want anything to separate me from that, and so I don't want to be defiled. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where everything around us, I mean, you can't help, but you've got to go to the store. You've got to buy groceries. You you buy gas, work, function in our culture and our society. But it's not the same as agreeing with it. It's not the same as partaking of it. When I was a police officer, I was exposed to all kinds of horrible stuff every day. It amazed me. I, I scratched my head sometimes. I can't believe. And after years, you kind of go, oh, yeah, again, again, whatever. But it didn't mean that I, okay, well, that sounds really good. I think I'll start doing that. No. God calls us to be different and not to just conform to our culture and to our society. Otherwise, the next step really is to love the world, the things of the world, and we're warned against that. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We've got to be careful what we love. And you say, well, I don't love that. Well, I don't know. Sit back for a minute and examine your life. Do we spend money on it? Do we spend our time and our effort on it? <laughs> there might be some things that we don't really say, well, I don't love that. But when you take a critical, objective look at things, sometimes maybe we do. Gradually, the result of loving the world is being conformed to the world. And we're warned against being conformed to the world. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, And be not conformed to the world, but be ye transformed with the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're called to be different. We're called to think differently. We're called to have a biblical world view, a biblical perspective on life, that we view everything that we see, that we experience through the lens of God's word. And when we do that, trust me, we'll see things differently. We will not be in agreement with what the world has to say. And that's a good thing because somebody has to have it right. Somebody needs to think it through. But finally, if we continue contrary to God's will and we end up loving the world and being conformed to the world, we will at the same time end up being condemned with the world. And we very much want to avoid that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 31 and 32, For if you would judge yourselves... We should not be judged, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be conformed or condemned with the world. When God judged the world back during the flood of Noah, there were those that were conformed to the world. There were those that were walking differently than the rest of the world. Those that walked in God's ways were saved through it. Those that walked in the ways of the world went for a swim. There's a day coming when God says, you know what? It's going to be done. 
and I'm going to call those that are mine to be with myself. And then those that are left, there'll be some that are saved out of that, but not as many as are going to be condemned. And there's coming a day of judgment, and we're not called to be the ones to decide, well, this one and that one and not that one. God makes the criteria. God will determine who goes and who stays, who steps into eternity in his presence, and who ends up in eternity separated from him in hell. In verses 4 and 5, And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spoke these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. So upon hearing this rebuke, this chastening by the angel of the Lord, the people, the, the nation of Israel wept, and they made sacrifices. But as we read on, you'll note that they did nothing different. They wept, they had this emotional experience, they made sacrifices, they praised the Lord, but they did not change their behavior. They didn't alter their course. There's no indication whatsoever of repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. I mean, how many people have we seen in our lifetimes that have been caught doing things that just wept big old crocodile tears? They were so sorry they got caught. <laughs> they weren't sorry for their actions. They were simply sorry that now they've got to pay the price for their actions. And that's worldly sorrow. That's the sorrow that doesn't change anything. But godly sorrow is born from conviction. The Holy Spirit will at times come into our life and guide us. When we sin as a believer in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's living in us, the Holy Spirit will convict. He will reveal that sin and convict us. And, and there's times, I'll be honest with you, I've been there, where I've done or said something and it just breaks my heart. I mean, I just can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. And it's like grieve over my sin. God, help me to be better. But that leads to repentance, genuine repentance before the Lord, and that leads to restoration. That's what God wants. He wants the restoration that comes from that. But it's born in humility. It's born in submitting our hearts and our lives to the Lord. Sadly, what we see in this chapter is the sorrow of the world. Bokim means the place of weeping, and it is. It's a place of weeping and mourning, and sin always leads to weeping and mourning. Later in their history, the prophet Joel would tell them in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and of great kindness, and repents him of evil. The prophet's saying, don't go with the outward expression. Back in those days, in Bible days, when people were grieved by something, they would oftentimes tear their cloak or their robe as a sign of grief, and they would throw dirt up in the air on their head or whatever. And that was an external manifestation or expression of grief. And they would just really get into it. But there were times, too, they would do that, and they would sit down and have dinner. And God's saying, don't give me an outward show. Don't be like a hypocrite and just make a big scene. Change your heart. Tear your heart, grieve in your heart over your sin, over the circumstances. Because God's looking to the heart. He doesn't look to the external. Men look to the external, but God always examines the heart. God isn't interested in the outward expression, because so often it's superficial. He's much more interested in that inward change. And that's why the psalmist tells us in Psalm 51, verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for heart change. Then as we move on now to verse 6, 
we read, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man into his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the mountain of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gaash. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. So basically, as long as Joshua and his contemporaries were around, the children of Israel, basically those who had seen all the great works of the Lord, they followed the Lord. But as soon as they were gone, then this newer generation just kind of went and did their own thing. They went astray. And it says that this new generation rose up that, quote-unquote, did not know the Lord. Now, to me, this is an amazing statement, nor the works that he had done. It doesn't say that they didn't know about God. It says that they didn't know God. There's a big difference there. I mean, that this generation didn't know the Lord. They knew all about God. They probably knew a lot of the stories. I mean, the nation that's the apple of his eye and, and this chosen people and all these different kinds of things. And it's like people that come to church and they know about God, but do we know God? There's a huge difference there. And in Hebrew, the word, they didn't know the Lord, it's the word yada, Y-A-D-A. And, you know, you hear that phrase over there and talk, yada, 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 I know, I know, I know. And it's like, yeah, and oftentimes, I know, I know, I know, but they really don't know. In the New Testament, there's a different word that's used for know, and it's the word gnosko. And it's used in Philippians 3.10 as an example. It says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The word gnosko, it means to know personally. It means to know experientially. It means to know intimately. And the example that's often used is that a husband and a wife know each other intimately. And it's different. There's another Greek word that's used in the New Testament, oedis. And it means to know, but it means to know by revelation. It's like you know by reading a book. You can read a book and learn how to wire your house or how to rebuild an engine or something like that. But it's not experiential knowledge. You can read books all day long about how to build a house, but until you get out a hammer and nails and some two-by-fours and stuff, you don't know how to build a house. And I've done that. I've tried to read stuff like, okay, I can fix this or do that by reading the book. It's not until I get the tools out and begin playing with it with my own hands that I actually know how to do that. And that's what's being talked about here. The Lord Jesus wants us to know him, to have a personal relationship with him that's based on experience. It's based on firsthand knowledge and intimacy with him. To know about God is no big deal. The demons know about God. They know that God is real, yet they don't submit their lives to him. And that's what the Lord is looking for in us. And that's what the problem is here with the children of Israel. They know about God, but it's like they go to synagogue, but it's like playing video games the whole time or whatever, like, oh, whatever, you know. They don't know him personally, and that's where things are lacking. And this is directly attributable to the lack of instruction and proper parenting on a national scale with the nation of Israel. They were told back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he said, And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently unto your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the wayside, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. 
that the Word of God and the attributes of God and who God is will be the subject of conversation all day long when you're with your kids, when you're walking along the wayside, when you're having dinner, that we're reading the Word of God together. We're talking about the great works that He's done. We're testifying to His glory. We're instructing our kids about the character of God and the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God. And it's the constant source. It's the focus of our lives. But you know what? If our kids only hear about God for an hour and a half on Sunday... And then the rest of our week, the rest of our life is all about living in the world and doing the things of the world and, and functioning and work and school and whatever else. They won't know or care about God. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, teaching part one of a three-part in-depth study of Judges chapter two. Please join us again next time for part two as we continue our study through the book of Judges and through the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you are blessed and we'd like to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road on Sunday mornings at 830 and 1030. Our Wednesday evening service begins at 7 and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. And if you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to walk with Jesus or want to know how to grow in your faith, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. All our services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you. you may